December 1, 1974. Northwest Airlines Flight 6231 is a chartered plane that is empty besides the crew en route to Buffalo, New York to pick up the Baltimore Colts NFL football team. After taking off in icy, wintry conditions from New York's JFK Airport, this Boeing 727 is climbing to its cruising altitude. Several minutes later, the crew is in distress. The plane is indicating its speed is approaching the speed of sound and the controls are starting to vibrate in the pilot's hands. 12 minutes after takeoff, the plane slams into the ground with vertical acceleration forces in excess of 5G, killing all three crew members on board. How did a routine charter flight end up so far over speed? Could anything have been done to save this plane? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. We're back again. They couldn't stop us, Chris. We're still here. We're still making podcasts. Yeah! They tried to... <laughs> they, the man tried to keep us down. <laughs> I don't know who's trying to stop us. Uh, but we're, we're here with a, another episode. Uh, as always, I want to remind people, you can follow us on social... Uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Black Box Down Pod, we post images and uh, videos and other things that we can't necessarily express. We can't show you anything in an audio podcast. So uh, check us out on social if you want to see some supplemental material. And I guess it it doesn't hurt to remind people that uh, neither of us are pilots. Uh, I'm just an enthusiast when it comes to aviation and uh, aviation incidents. And I'm here to explain what, what's going on to Chris. And Chris is here to ask questions and uh, point out things that maybe uh, I don't think about, which happens quite a bit. This episode, we're covering Northwest Airlines Flight 6231. Northwest Airlines, of course, doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, I think Delta acquired them. Someone acquired them. They they don't exist anymore. Uh, But this particular incident was, uh, like I said, December 1st, 1974. It was a chartered flight, so there wasn't anybody on the plane aside from the crew. Yeah, I thought for a second an entire football team was going to go down. Yeah, that's why I I was, I tried to make sure I I said that it's empty aside from the crew and that, you know, only the the three crew members on board were were killed in this incident. But the plane was on its way to pick up the Baltimore Colts who were out in Buffalo, New York. But they, of course, like we said, the NFL team was not on the plane yet. So the flight departed from JFK in New York City and it was headed up to Buffalo. And like I said, it only had those three crew members on board. Uh, Like like we've talked about before, it was an older plane. Mm -hmm. So it had, you know, a pilot, co-pilot and flight engineer. The plane was a Boeing 727 and a little bit of trivia. This was actually one of two 727s that crashed on this particular day. What? Yeah, just to highlight how much aviation has changed, right, over over time. On this day, on December 1st, 1974, there were actually two 727s that crashed. And uh, we're only covering one of them. The other one was a TWA flight that crashed uh, on its way. It was diverting to Washington, D.C., Dulles uh, Airport. Hmm. Um, but anyway, we're not going to get into that one. Maybe we'll cover that one in the future. But this particular flight, this 727, was crewed by Captain John B. Ligorio, who uh, had been with Northwest Airlines for uh, almost nine years. He had about 7,500 flight hours with just under 2,000 of those hours in the 727. There was also First Officer Walter Zadra, who had been with the airline for almost seven years, had about 4,700 hours, and two-thirds of that was spent as a flight engineer. He only had 46 hours as a pilot in the 727 at this time, so kind of inexperienced with this particular plane, but had spent plenty of time, you know, as a flight engineer. Oh, I have a question. Yeah. Is a flight engineer harder to get a job as than a pilot, or is it more training because i know we don't have flight engineers anymore because the computers pretty much take care of all of it but which was the harder job to do well i mean i I will say this uh one of those jobs was automated by computers and the other hasn't been okay i mean and i'm not not to put down the people who were flight engineers but 
you know, I think probably piloting is more difficult than being a flight engineer. But of course, you know, being a flight engineer is very difficult on its own. That sounded really flippant. I didn't. I don't. I hope it didn't. <laughs> I hope it didn't come across that way. You know, I, I just. I'm like. I'm, I'm just like objectively. If you look at them, one of those jobs was able to be automated and replaced by you know computers and processing power. There are you know, autopilot does exist for pilots, but pilots still have to fly the plane manually. Okay. Yeah, no offense meant to any people who were flight engineers. So in my opinion, I think piloting is probably more difficult. Gotcha. Uh, then, of course, we had the flight engineer, James Fox, who had been with Airline for about six years, had about 1,600 hours as a flight engineer in a 727. Okay, so the weather in this area from about 5 p.m. to 11 p.m. forecasted moderate to heavy snowstorms and rain showers and some scattered thunderstorms, with the tops of these storms reaching up to 28,000 feet. And at about 5.55 p.m., there was a segment issued that predicted frequent moderate icing in clouds and severe precipitation. It was valid until 10 p.m. And segment stands for significant meteorological information. So it's basically just like a weather advisory, right? That it tells them that, hey, there's potentially really bad weather for aircraft out here. Okay. For the hour of 7 p.m., the weather in the area had a broken layer of clouds at 2,500 feet and an overcast layer at 5,000 feet with a temperature of about 34 degrees and a dew point of 23 degrees. So it's bad weather, it's pretty overcast, and it's barely just above freezing, you know, 34 okay. degrees. It's not like crazy, it's not like blizzard or anything, right? It's it's not necessarily a blizzard, but the forecast does say there's going to be heavy snowstorms and some scattered thunderstorms. Okay. So, I mean, it's not good weather by any stretch of the imagination. Okay. So I mentioned that the dew point was 23 degrees, and the dew point is the temperature where the air reaches 100% humidity. And, you know, once you're at that point... Uh, and the temperature drops, the air can't hold any more water vapor because it's already at 100% humidity. So that water condenses into clouds or fog. So the higher the dew point, that just means there's more moisture in the air. So a lot of severe thunderstorms happen with high dew points. Okay. A low dew point means there's less moisture in the air. And another thing to keep in mind is that as you gain altitude, the temperature drops a bit. So roughly for every 1,000 feet you go up in altitude, the temperature drops about... 2 degrees Celsius, which is about 3.5 degrees Fahrenheit, all the way up to 36,000 feet. So it only takes a few thousand feet of altitude for that temperature to be low enough for the moisture to condense with these particular conditions that we're looking at in this day. The takeaway here is low temperatures and moisture in the air leads to ice. So that, that's kind of where we're going with this. Okay, yeah, get some science in. Right. This is not a weather podcast, so we're not going <laughs> to go too much further into that. But for what we need to know right now, that's, that's our takeaway here. There was actually another Northwest Airlines flight that had a similar route as 6231. And the captain of that flight reported that uh, he was in the clouds most of the time between 1,500 and 23,000 feet. And he had encountered some icing and light turbulence on his climb. Mm-hmm. So this particular flight now, uh, 6231, the, the topic of this episode. They departed from JFK at about 7.14 p.m. After takeoff, the flight was cleared up to 13,500 feet, where it leveled out for about 50 seconds. And at this time, their airspeed indicator went from 264 knots to 304 knots, which is 304 miles an hour to 350 miles an hour. Wait, oh, just automatically? It just like clicked? So like I said, it's over the, the, the course of 50 seconds. But during these 50 seconds, there were, there were some weird things that had happened. There was also a reduction of 40 knots, which is 46 miles an hour, which lasted for seven seconds. And then a reduction of 140 knots, which is 161 miles an hour, that lasted for five seconds. So basically, the airspeed indicator was going a little wonky. Okay. It was showing the speed had gone down, then it went up, you know, over this course of 50 seconds. Um, We're not really sure if the flight crew notices this. 
But when the 50 seconds had lapsed, the crew was cleared up to flight level 310, which is 31,000 feet. The aircraft began to climb at a rate of 2,500 feet a minute while maintaining an airspeed of 205 knots, which is 236 miles an hour. They reached 16,000 feet and they continued to climb, but their indicated airspeed also began to climb, which caused the rate of climb to increase as well because, you know, you go faster and Mm -hmm. you get more lift, your rate of climb increases. And the first officer commented uh, and uh, he said, do you realize we're going 340 knots and I'm climbing 5,000 feet a minute? And 340 knots is about 391 miles an hour. What's normal? Well, they, sh- they shouldn't have been this. They, you know, <laughs> they were initially climbing at about 2,500 feet a minute. Okay. Uh, so now they're climbing at about double that. Gotcha. So they're going up fast. Right. They're going uh, really fast. And earlier when they were climbing, they were maintaining an airspeed of 205 knots. So now they're mm-hmm. doing 340. So they're definitely going faster and climbing faster. Uh, so they're, t- they're talking it over, right? The crew, they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, the flight engineer says, that's because we're light. And, you know, he's speculating that there's no passengers, there's no luggage, the plane's lighter than it normally would be. So in his opinion, they're probably going faster and climbing more because of that. Hmm. Um, the captain replies, it gives up real fast. It's going to give up pretty soon. So the rate of climb eventually exceeds 6,500 feet per minute. And if you remember, when we did the Air France 447 episode, we said a rate of climb is typically between 2,000 and 3,000 feet a minute in airliners. And they're going 6,500 feet a minute uh, is their rate of climb. Yeah, so they're really going up. They're, yeah, they're way too fast. Yeah, it's, and there's not like a break on the plane. It's just the, like the flaps and stuff. And like well, you they, would like... You could reduce your throttle, you know, uh-huh. uh, yeah, angle your plane up a little bit. You, know, you work with your flight surfaces. But uh, yeah, uh, I mean... You're, you're right. I mean, you, you would typically control it with throttle is what you would try to do here. Mm-hmm. So when the plane reaches 23,000 feet, the overspeed warning horn goes off and the indicated airspeed was 405 knots, which is 466 miles an hour. Captain Ligorio said, would you believe that? To which First Officer Zadger replies, I believe it. I just can't do anything about it. And then Ligorio says, no, just pull her back. Let her climb. So they're not worried right now? I mean, they're... They're they they're worried. They're noticed that something's wrong. They're they're they think maybe it's just because they're light. And he says, you know, pull her back, let her climb, which is something you can do. You know, you you pull back on the stick, and that can slow you down mm-hmm. since your um you know your angle of attack goes higher. So when the captain says that to pull her back, let her climb, the overspeed warning goes off again. Like you've been saying, you know, in your opinion, you know, obviously we're, neither of us are pilots, but in your opinion, you're asking, you know. Can they apply a break? You know, what do you do to slow down? Do you have any guesses at this point as to what might be happening under this plane? I mean, okay, okay. It's probably got something to do with the weather because we normally don't have weather lessons. Uh, <laughs> well, that's cheating. They didn't know that. <laughs> uh, I mean, is it something like the ice has like iced over the flaps or controls or something so that they can't, what would normally slow them down isn't happening? That's an interesting theory, but uh, we're, we're, we're going to see. Like, I, mean, I was just curious to see okay. what, your, what your thought was here based on the information that, that's present at hand. Okay. If you haven't heard that Dollar Shave Club has great razors, let me be the first to welcome you to the club. Stop buying expensive razors out of habit and start thinking about joining Dollar Shave Club today. Right now, try out Dollar Shave Club's Ultimate Shave Starter Set for a one-time trial offer for only 5 bucks plus free shipping. After that, you can continue to get an unimaginably smooth shave as razor refills ship at regular prices right to your door as often as you want. My personal favorite is the Shave Butter. It's a gentle translucent shave aid that softens whiskers, helps fights razor bumps, and leaves your skin feeling unimaginably smooth. 
So ditch your overpriced racers and join the club today with Dollar Shave Club's Ultimate Shave Starter Set for only five bucks. It has everything you need for an amazing shave, six blade razor, shave butter, prep scrub, and post shave do you all ship right to wherever you call home nowadays. And after the first box, razor refills ship at regular prices on the schedule you want. So try the Ultimate Shave Starter Set today for just five bucks, plus free shipping at dollarshaveclub.com slash blackboxdown. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash blackboxdown. Welcome to the club. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you definitely should check out since you're a fan, obviously, of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The show covers a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. There's tons of episodes I'm sure you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Uh, Like here recently, he just had a talk with uh, Gabriel Mizrahi, which uh, he gives you information how to look out for common scams and uh, how to deal with them when you encounter them. And uh, a while ago, he had an interview with Gary Kasparov, who's a Russian chess grandmaster. I'm sure you've probably heard of him. (laughs) Uh, Really interesting to hear uh, his thoughts uh, about chess and uh, how it applied to uh, Soviet Russian ideology. Uh, It's an episode for everyone, though. Uh, If you're not into those, no matter what you're into, the show covers stories like how professional art forgers somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia, uh, Jordan's also done an episode about birth control, how it can alter the partners we pick, uh, how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. Uh, you can tell the podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. And I promise you, you'll find something useful you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Uh, search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, that's Jordan Harbinger Show. Uh, check it out. So about 10 seconds later, the stall warning stick shaker was recorded. Now remember, the stick shaker is the warning that lets the crew know that the airplane's stalling. It's, uh, it just basically vibrates their controls as a warning to them to let them know like, hey, you're about to stall. The vertical acceleration uh, then went down. It reduced and the flight leveled out at 24,800 feet. And their indicated airspeed showed they were going 420 knots, which is 483 miles an hour. The stall warning, you know, begins going off again, and the first officer's address says, that's the mock buffet. Guess we'll have to pull it up. To which Captain Ligorio responds, pull it up. And the sound of the landing gear warning horn went off. Wait, the mock bucket? Mock buffet. <laughs> so it, 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 it's spelled like buffet, like buffet. You know, okay. it's like you're getting hit. Or Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> so Mach 1 is the speed of sound. And uh-huh. like we've talked about before, the only real commercial aviation plane that exceeds Mach 1, exceeds the speed of sound, was the Concorde. That's supposed to. <laughs> You're right. It's the only plane that's supposed to, uh, that's designed to ex- uh, exceed the speed of sound. So the Mach buffet is a slight buffet. It's like the, the plane starts shaking or like like it's getting hit, like, like it's vibrating. Uh, so it's a slight buffet that occurs when an aircraft exceeds its critical Mach number. So is it a like a warning that the plane is designed to say, hey, 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 slow down, or is it just something that happens? Right. It's something that just happens. Okay. Uh, like this buffet happens when an aircraft exceeds its critical Mach number and the critical Mach number of a plane is the lowest Mach number at which the airflow over some point of the aircraft reaches a speed of sound but does not exceed it. So basically it's like you're getting close to the speed of sound so the plane starts vibrating because of it. It's like the formation of little shock waves on the airfoils. Oh. So it's like as you get close, like you're getting almost like little sonic booms that start happening and that's what starts causing the plane to to vibrate and shake. Oh. And uh, that shockwave causes like a high frequency vibration in those control surfaces, which is described as a buffet or a buzz. So that's that's what they think they're feeling. And they know what this is. They're like, oh, the mock buffet. Right. But really, it's 
the stall warning stick shaker. Oh. I'm going to give you a little spoiler here. They think that they're about to exceed the speed of sound, but they're about to stall. Oh. So basically, the crew thought that they were going really fast and they're getting close to the speed of sound, which is about 667 knots or 767 miles an hour. And they thought that that stall warning stick shaker was the, like the airflow over the plane hitting the speed of sound and causing shock waves. But oh. they're stalling. But both should be alarming. <laughs> right. I, but they've diagnosed the problem to be something else, to be the okay. wrong thing. Like they're worried that they're going too fast, but in reality, they're going too slow. What? Right. I mean, that's what a stall is. They're, they're, yeah. they're not going fast enough. So about 13 seconds after they reached 24,800 feet, the vertical acceleration dropped and the plane started to descend at a recorded rate of 15,000 feet a minute. Uh, the indicated airspeed began to drop at a rate of four knots per second. And the plane's magnetic heading changed from 290 degrees to 80 degrees in a span of 10 seconds. So all this tells you the plane is rapidly turning to the right. Mm -hmm. And as the plane continues to descend, the G-force became 1.5 Gs and a mayday call was sent out by the crew. Uh, 30 seconds later, the crew reported they were descending through 12,000 feet and that they were in a stall. So, okay, they go straight up and then they like stall and then just turn and nosedive pretty much? Right. Well, so they're climbing and... They climb pretty quickly. They get up to 24,800 feet, and then that's where they stall. And like I said, their heading changed from 290 degrees, which is essentially a western heading, to uh, 80 degrees, which is an east heading. Well, almost an east heading. So basically, they do 210 degrees around. So basically, they face, they go from one direction to another direction in 10 seconds, and uh, they're dropping at 15,000 feet a minute, which is super fast. Yeah. So like I said, in 30 seconds, they go from 24,800 feet to 12,000 feet. They're just basically out of control. They've started this crazy turn. They're going really fast down at the ground. About five seconds after they descend through 12,000 feet, Captain Ligorio commands for the flaps to be set. And uh, the sound of the flap handle was recorded, but there was no change in the rate of descent. And the G-force began to exceed three Gs with the indicated airspeed at zero knots. Five seconds later, First Officer Zadro was recorded saying, pull now, pull, that's it. The vertical acceleration increased and the g-force exceeded five g's um, that's a lot so like if you're under five g's of force it's like you weigh five times as much as you really do so they're like squished against their seats like could they be blacking out at this point it's possible you know if you're not trained for it uh if you're not prepared to handle that kind of pressure you know like your blood doesn't flow properly so it's possible you could start blacking out at this point the rate of descent decreases slightly, but they continue to fall until they reach uh, an altitude of 1,090 feet, which is the height of the terrain uh, at 7.25 p.m. So in the span of 83 seconds, the aircraft had fallen from 24,800 feet and crashed in a Harriman State Park near Stony Point, New York. The plane hit the ground in a slightly nose down and right wing down attitude, and all three crew members were killed. What was their altitude at the peak? 24,800 feet. 24,000, and then they went down in 83 seconds? Mm hmm. 24,800 feet, that's almost, uh, well, I mean, roughly, that's just under five miles in the air, because there's like, what, 5,280 feet in a mile? So they're almost five miles in the air, and they covered those five miles in 83 seconds. Damn. Yeah, I mean, that is fast. So obviously, clearly, you know, before we, we go any further, you can tell there's a problem with the airspeed indicator here. And mm -hmm. as we learned in a previous episode, Air France 447, this could be a problem with the pitot tube. You know, we know it was really cold during this flight. There were freezing conditions. There was moisture. So it's possible there was ice buildup in the pitot tube that might be the culprit. Again, just like Air France 447. And just the pitot tube, it indicates how fast 
the plane is going. Is that the only you're, thing it does again? You're right. <laughs> we should we should uh, recap the pitot tube function. <laughs> uh, just uh, we shouldn't assume everyone's listening to every episode. So the pitot tube, they're little tubes that sit outside the plane. That, in a very simplified explanation, they measure the speed that the air is hitting them, and that's how they can tell um, the instruments what the airspeed is. It's really a little more complicated than that. They actually measure pressure differences, but I mean. We won't get too specific into into how they work. Maybe we'll, we'll we'll actually talk a little bit about how they measure pressure in just a bit. But for right now, simple explanation: they're just little tubes that sit outside the cockpit and uh, measure the speed of the air hitting them. And of course, if there's ice in there and they get stopped up, then they can't measure the speed, so airspeed indicators go wonky. So the NTSB investigators at the crash site they found that the pitot head heater switches were in the off position. And they believe that the switches were off when the plane crashed. Hmm. Investigators found the left elevator pitot head laying on the ground. And when it was exposed to sunlight, water poured out of it. Oh. Right. So, you know, makes you think that there was ice in it that melted. Moisture was also found in the captain's uh, pitot head. The first officer's pitot head was crushed and damaged, so they weren't able to determine if there was any moisture in it. And the right elevator pitot head was still attached to the vertical stabilizer and water and ice were not found inside of it. They also found that the engine anti-ice switches for the number one and two engines were on, and the switch for the third engine was found in the off position, uh, but tests showed that all three engine anti-ice indicator lights were on at impact. So the engines probably did have all their anti-ice um, measures on. But why, why would someone turn off the ice things ever? Well, if you don't need them, if there's not going to be icing conditions, you don't necessarily oh. need your anti-ice uh, mechanisms on. Okay, so they don't just leave them on just right. in case? Yeah, there's, there's no point. Okay. Okay, we'll talk a little bit here about the pitot tube specifically. So the pitot tube, it has an inlet port, but it also has a drain hole so that water can fall out of it if ice inside the tube starts to melt. And when the pitot inlet port becomes blocked, the indicated airspeed drops, like I said, because obviously the airflow can't get into it. And this did happen briefly in the flight, but there were two drops in airspeed that were recorded. Remember I I said in that Mm -hmm. 50 second span that the airspeed went a little wonky. What they found was that Okay, this is going to be a little complicated. Okay, I'm ready. The greater the angle between the longitudinal axis of the pitot head and the relative wind, the greater the likelihood that the drain hole would also freeze over. So basically they found that if they were at a certain angle, then the hole that's designed to drain out the water, that that would freeze over. Oh, it just wasn't draining water? Right, it was also frozen over. And what they found is that when that drain hole freezes over, the airspeed indicator becomes fixed or stuck. Huh. So they tried to recreate the values and speed recorded by the flight data recorder by adjusting vacuum and pressure sources, but only in specific conditions. I know this is really confusing. Um, I'm going to read you the report verbatim just to show okay. like how confusing this is. It's, it, I'm sure it makes sense to them, but to me, like to someone who doesn't do this all the time, it's confusing. So I'm going to read a little excerpt here from uh, the report. In an effort to reproduce the apparent inconsistencies between the airspeed and altitude values on the FDR traces, tests were conducted with an airspeed indicator and an altimeter connected to vacuum and pressure sources. By altering the vacuum to the altimeter and to the airspeed indicator, the altitude trace could be reproduced. However, following ascent above 16,000 feet, the FDR airspeed and altitude values could be simultaneously duplicated only when the total pressure to the airspeed indicator was fixed at its FDR value, for an altimeter reading of about 15,675 feet and an indicated airspeed of about 302 knots. Yeah, I don't, I, that, I'm a little lost on that. <laughs> yeah, that, so that, that, that's what we're working with here. That's what we're trying to kind of like encapsulate and explain. Okay. So it's super complicated. 
the simple version is the Peter tube got frozen over. <laughs> the Peter okay. tube got blocked up. So they found that the aircraft airspeed and altitude values were consistent with predicted performances until the aircraft reached 16,000 feet. The increase in both airspeed and the rate of ascent that were recorded exceeded theoretical performance capabilities of a Boeing 727, and the recorded airspeed correlated within 5% with the theoretical speeds which would be expected if the pressure measured in the pitot system had remained constant after climbing through 16,000 feet. So it just seemed that on top of the ice covering both ports of the pitot tube, the pressure inside the tube was also affected, which was giving high airspeed indicators. So basically, pitot tube froze over, and then the pressure inside the tube was affected, which started giving these wonky airspeed indicators. So it froze over on both sides. It created a little vacuum. On the intake, yeah, and on the drain. You're correct, yeah. So it created like a little sealed system basically okay so one of the specific findings in this report is that that static pressure decreased and that's what caused the higher speed indicator so like we're saying the pressure changed because they're mm -hmm. they're climbing and there's less air pressure and that's what causes this problem so the pitot tube isn't like some little fan or something that like spins and met and how fast it spins determines the speed it's like some other system yeah it's 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 just like a little valve with an inlet port and, you know, in this case, a drain port. Hmm. So it's like no moving parts. It's simple. It should be simple. Okay. So the investigators also calculated that the airspeed when the stick shaker activated was actually 165 knots or 190 miles an hour, as opposed to 420 oh. knots or 483 miles an hour that was indicated. So they, they were going half the speed that they thought they were? Way less than half the speed. So they thought they were going 483 miles an hour, but they were going 190 miles an hour. Yeah, and, and they thought they were... Man, that's so counterintuitive. On top of that, the attitude of the plane was 30 degrees nose up when that stick shaker activated because they were trying to, you know, slow down a bit. So they were pulling the nose up. Because, wow. you know, we've talked about this before. In a stall, yeah. when you're going too slow, you nose down to increase your speed and increase the airflow over the wings. They were trying to slow down, so they were pulling back, which oh, is what's no. contributing to the stall. Yeah, I was, always, I was with you the whole time. I was like, wait, so if they're going that fast, then how, like... Yeah. <laughs> It made sense what they were doing. Right. Just so you know, that stick shaker warning, uh, it's activated by the plane's angle of attack and not the pitot tube airspeed measuring system. Mm -hmm. So that's why it activated. Like it's, it knew that something was wrong, even though the airspeed indicator was, uh, was messed up. Gotcha. They also found that the angle of descent was about 60 degrees nose down until the flaps activated, and then it changed to 50 degrees. So the plane was also in a tight nose down spiral with a bank angle between 70 and 80 degrees. So... They were probably in a spin going nose down to the right uh, when Man. they crashed. So the big question, of course, is why wasn't the pitot heat turned on? Like they had, There's a system there mm -hmm. to heat up the tube so that ice doesn't form. Yeah. Uh, Northwest Airlines operational procedures, they require that during the pre-takeoff check, the flight engineer reads out items and the first officer must check the items and respond. Okay. During the checklist, the cockpit voice recorder recorded the engineer saying pitot heat and the first officer saying off and on. What? Right. And then the sound of five clicks were recorded. Some other Northwest Airlines pilot said that the checklist is used only to check that the required action has already been performed, not to use it as a list for things that need to be done. That it's the first officer's duty to turn on the pitot heat switches and to leave them on. So with the NTSB, there, obviously there's no way to figure out exactly what happened. So it's speculation here. The NTSB suspects that the five clicks heard on the CVR may have been the pitot heater switches to the off position and then the engine anti-ice switches to the on position, which is the opposite of normal procedure. So he turned them, they were already on and he turned them off? 
Possibly. Possibly. That he turned them off and then turned the engine anti-ice switches on, which is why he said off and on. So it's possible that the first officer just got mixed up, but I mean, there's no way to know exactly what happened. Okay. So when you're turning on a light switch, right? And they can be, you can not know if it's up or down sometimes to turn it Mm -hmm. on or off, but on a plane with something, shouldn't it be labeled like on off yes and it's always the same direction it's not it's not like a light switch you know uh where it's possible that it might be in different positions it's it's always in the same direction and it should be labeled that way there's no question about it Hmm. so yeah i mean who knows the first officer just for some reason didn't activate the the pedo heat and you know the crew also attributed the high air speeds to low weight of the aircraft which is something that they're not used to so they got distracted by this other potential problem and didn't see the problem that was actually right in front of them yeah so the ntsb determined that the probable cause of this accident was the loss of control of the aircraft because the flight crew failed to recognize and correct the aircraft's high angle of attack low speed stall and its descending spiral the stall was precipitated by the flight crew's improper reaction to erroneous airspeed and mock indications which had resulted from a blockage of the pedal heads by atmospheric icing contrary to standard operating procedures the flight crew had not activated the pedal head heaters. So all of this basically just summarized is they didn't turn their pedal head heaters on. Their airspeed indicator got messed up. They had a super high angle of attack, which caused them to stall and spiral out of control. I, it's so weird that they're, they can't tell how fast they're going in any way inside the plane. Like, can they not feel the G-force or you know what I'm saying? Like if they're like, oh, wow, we're about to break the speed of sound. But in reality, they're going really slow comparatively. Can they not feel it? Well, what you would feel is acceleration, not speed, uh-huh. right? So like imagine you're in a car. If you're going down the highway and you're going 60 miles an hour with no change on a straight road, you don't feel like you're going 60 miles an hour. It feels to you like you could be stopped. Yeah. You only ever feel going from zero to 60 or going from 60 when to it, zero. When it right? accelerates, okay. Right, so all you ever feel is acceleration or deceleration. You know, if in their mind, they had been slowly accelerating up to this point, they don't necessarily, you can't feel that you're going 480 miles an hour or 190 miles an hour. You only feel that difference in uh, acceleration. And so the G-force that they're feeling on the way down is all the acceleration. Correct. Not necessarily the speed. Right. We get this question fairly frequently on social media on um, on twitter and instagram where people ask like did they not feel that they were going this fast or did they not feel uh that they were you know that something was wrong like you don't like i I always try to give the example of a car because that's what everyone's been in a car they can or most people have been in a car they can understand that like when you're maintaining a certain speed or if you're slowly changing speed you don't feel that you only feel when it's a big change in acceleration yeah and i guess now i'm thinking about it when i've been in a car that's going really really fast I'm probably more aware of it because I'm like looking at the outside. Yes. Looking through the windows. And there's also probably some like vibrations in the car that you don't normally feel if you're going, I mean, like really fast. Not that I'm like a a road racer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying like, you know, you're like, wow, we're going like 120 miles. Again, I'm not road racing, but. I've seen seen Chris's car. It cannot go 120 (laughs) miles an hour. I'm telling you that right now. I guess it's more you just visually see it. And remember, they were in bad weather. There was uh, clouds everywhere. So, even you know, they couldn't really, like, look out at the ground. And even then, like, if you were on a plane, could you look out at the ground and really tell that much of a difference in the speed? Yeah, and, and the, it's not like you can really tell the clouds are moving past faster or slower. Right. Maybe a little bit, but not... I'm sure a pilot who spent, you know, thousands of hours in a cockpit can probably tell better than we can. But, you know, when I'm on a plane, I can't tell how fast mm-hmm. we're going by looking at the ground. Yeah. 
So in the aftermath of this, the NTSB makes three recommendations to the FAA. The first uh, recommendation is to issue an operations bulletin to all air carriers and general aviation inspectors to stress the need for pilots to use attitude information when questionable information is presented on the instruments that are dependent on the air data system. So that's just telling pilots to, hey, when your airspeed is questionable, look at your attitude information. Basically, look at your angle of attack. Hmm. Where's your nose pointed, basically? Gotcha. Number two. Issue an airworthiness directive to require that a warning system be installed on transport category aircraft, which will indicate by way of a warning light when the flight instrument pitot tube heating system is not operating. So they're saying that there should be a warning light that tells them when the pitot tube heating system isn't working, whether it's not on or it's broken or whatever. It's just saying like, hey, it's unreliable right now. Correct. Yeah. For the, the tube, how does it know that it's not working correctly? If you said it's a simple instrument, like how would they even know or how would the device know that it's broken, if that makes sense? That's a really good question. And I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, so the FAA responds to each of these three recommendations. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to read you their response to that recommendation in just a bit, because uh, that kind of covers what you're talking about here. So number three recommendation from the NTSB is to amend the applicable federal air regulations to require that pitot heating system to be on Anytime the electrical power is applied to an aircraft, this should also be incorporated in the operator's operation manual. So this basically just says, hey, if the plane's on, the pitot heating should be on automatically. Oh, so that that thing that was like, well, why isn't it on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay, here's the FAA responses to each of those bulletins. So the first bulletin we said uh, is to remind pilots they need to look at their attitude information, right? Uh, the FAA responds, air carrier operation alert bulletin 75-3 dated February 13th covers this subject. A Part 135 Air Taxi Bulletin is being prepared. We're also considering the issuance of an advisory circular on the subject. So basically, they agree. They're like, okay, yeah, we're working on that. The number two recommendation was that there should be a warning light when the pitot heating system's not operating, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the FAA's response. We do not concur with this recommendation. Some aircraft have cycling types of pitot heaters. These heaters cycle on and off as controlled by thermostats or timers. Warning lights would flash on and off with the cycling. We consider this as distracting and possibly detrimental to safety. Other aircraft in which the pitot head is controlled by a simple on-off switch could be modified by adding a power relay and warning light. We do not consider this necessary or desirable. Operation of the pitot heat is on the cockpit checklist and is well covered in operations manuals and crew training. In addition, the effectiveness of additional warning lights among the many warning lights presently installed in the cockpit is of doubtful value. Hmm. Yeah, they say... They don't agree. They say that there's no need for this warning light. Some pitot systems turn on and off automatically, so there'd be a warning light that flashes off and on, and they don't want to add another warning light on top of all the other lights. You see, yeah, I mean, you've seen pictures of cockpits and how many... Yeah, it's a lot of lights. Right, it's like, why add another one if you don't have to? So FAA sends the recommendation, and wait, who's this responding? The NTSB sends the recommendation. NTSB, okay. And then the FAA responds. The NTSB just reminded me of the acronym? So the National Transportation Safety Board. So they're the okay. ones who investigate the crashes. And the FAA is the Federal Aviation Administration. They regulate the airlines. Okay. Do they argue often? Uh, it can happen. I mean, usually that they're in agreement with you know what should be okay. done. But, I mean, it, it has happened, and it can happen that you know they disagree on, on what should be done. So the number three recommendation that the NTSB made was for the pitot heating system to be on automatically anytime there's electrical power in the aircraft. And uh, here's a response from the FAA. This recommendation is considered to apply to all types of aircraft in service and to future designs. We propose to delete from consideration those aircrafts which are limited to VFR flight only since they are not required to have any de-icing capabilities. Retrofit on existing aircraft presents many problems and we do not consider the recommendation practical for general adoption. 
So what they're saying is they're going to consider to apply this to all type of aircraft in service and to future designs. They're not going to recommend it to what they said to aircraft that are limited to VFR flight only. So that's VFR is visual flight rule. So they're not going to recommend it for smaller planes that don't do instrument flight. Okay. So just like little the ones that don't have pitot tubes or? Well, it's just like smaller planes like Cessnas and stuff like that. Because uh-huh. basically planes that aren't required to have de-icing capabilities. These are planes that probably won't be flying in icy conditions anyway. Gotcha. But they all have pitot tubes, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, smaller planes do have pitot tubes as well. But since they're limited to visual flight rules and they don't do instrument flight and they don't have the capability to be de-iced, this is not a plane you would be flying in these weather conditions anyway. Okay. So in the FAA's opinion, it doesn't make sense. And then the FAA goes on to say that they're not going to recommend retrofitting this for existing aircraft because basically there's a bunch of them and there's, <laughs> it's going to cost a lot of money and there's a lot of problems. Okay. But they're going to do it for future ones? Right. So uh, that was uh, implemented and that it's something that should be done automatically in future designs. Okay. So And future designs from the time of this incident, from 1974, 1975, you know. So uh, from aircraft made after that, then yeah, it it was uh, part of the FAA's recommendations. Good. And the first one was just like training? Like, hey, pay attention to this? The first one's just like, hey, when your uh, speed information is questionable, pay attention to your attitude. Yeah. Your, Ad- your plane's you attitude <laughs> adjustment. <laughs> yeah. Not, not like uh, not like your your state of mind. Not your not like the pilot has bad attitude. <laughs> like, you need to check your attitude, mister. Uh, with the plane, like whether, you know, uh, what its angle of attack is, basically. Yeah. So uh, that's it. I mean, that's Northwest Airlines Flight 6231. Strange flight because the uh, the crew thought they were about to break the speed of sound, but in reality, they were actually stalling. That's so bizarre. They're so crazy to, th- to be so mixed up about the speed. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other one that had the frozen tube, mm-hmm. what year was that? So yeah, Air France 447, that was in 2009. How did that one freeze over again if they'd already made the auto heat thing activated? It's one of those things, right? It's like a seemingly simple question that in reality, it turns out to be pretty complicated. So I don't want to say anything too controversial here, but two years before Air France 447 crashed, Airbus had recognized that there was a problem with those kinds of pitot tubes that was on Air France 447. And they had actually recommended replacing those with newer pitot tubes or different kind of pitot tube uh, in order to prevent this kind of problem. And Air France was actually in the process of swapping out all of those pitot tubes. They just hadn't gotten to Air France 447 yet to uh, put the new okay. pitot probes on them yet. So Basically, it's like they were flying with pitot tubes that had a known issue and they were in the process of swapping them out. They just hadn't gotten to this one yet. Gotcha. Okay. I couldn't remember. It was a while since we did that episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, again, there were a whole other slew of issues. Uh, If you're interested in hearing another pitot tube incident and you haven't heard it already, we go listen to Air France 447. It's an episode we already did. For those pitot tube uh, uh, enthusiasts. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so uh, that about covers it for uh, Northwest Airlines Flight 6231. Uh, Yet another incident that led to changes in the industry that uh, make flying much safer. Can you imagine nowadays if two planes crashed in one day? You know, both both in the U.S.? Yeah, I couldn't. I mean, I guess there were not a lot of people on this flight, so there would be a little less uh, news about it. Yeah, but still. But still, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay, here's a question. In 1974, how many days of the year were there plane crashes? That is a strange question. (laughs) Let me see if I can find the answer to that. So I found a list uh, on a website called planecrashinfo.com, and it looks like they break down incidents by year. And there were quite a few here uh, for 1974. I'm looking at this looks to be a list of passenger planes. So based on this list that I'm looking at here, there were 58 incidents in 1974. 
So there's 52 weeks in a year. So there's more than one a week is what it averages out to. More than one a week. I mean, that's a lot. That's quite a bit. We don't have anywhere near that now, right? Let me see sorry, if I can find I'm it. sorry, baby. No, no I, I, I like these questions. This is the kind of stuff that, like, when I'm sitting around that I start wondering about. And this is, like, this is kind of what fueled my interest in aviation, right? We're starting to think about things like this. So for comparison, this same website, I'm looking at the number of incidents for our current year, 2020. And, uh, you know, again, worldwide, uh, we're at eight. Eight. Wow. Well, granted, this year is a little off because we're probably flying a little less. But still, that's... That's, That's significantly less. less. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're, we're recording this. It's August currently. So that averages yeah. out to one a month as opposed to more than one every week. Yeah, so it's, well, that, I mean, yeah. It's, and I bet there are a lot more flights in total, too. Oh, yeah. there's you, We've talked about that before, too, yeah. is there's way more aviation happening these days and um, far fewer incidents. So uh, I forget the number I gave uh, recently, but we talked about the number of billions of miles that are, are traveled by air and the number of fatalities. And it's super low. Yeah. So, you know, don't don't worry. Don't be a nervous flyer. If anything, I hope you take away from this podcast is that the industry's learned a lot from all of these incidents and that, you know, flying is now a super safe method of travel. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, as always, I recommend everyone go follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Black Box Down Pod. And uh, if you all have any questions or if you have any incidents you'd like to see us cover, just send us uh, a tweet at BlackBoxDownPod or, you know, comment on one of our images over on Instagram, uh, where we, we try to be pretty involved with uh, on the social media front. So uh, let us know. Thanks. Thanks.